Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said, there is only one way to eat an elephant, a bite at a time. You see, everything in life that seems daunting and overwhelming and impossible, as we look back, has been changed and transformed gradually, incrementally, little by little. Usually the goal for the person of faith or the community of faith is to creatively and prayerfully figure out the next right best thing to do, guided by the Holy Spirit, and then do it over and over and over and over again. Now, granted, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus was a sudden, decisive, once-for-all, uh, cosmos-altering event, but even there, the victory won by Jesus is being implemented incrementally, little by little, person by person, family by family, city by city, church by church, as the kingdom of God that has come through Christ is being slowly revealed. And I bring that up because this morning, uh, we are coming to a daunting, overwhelming subject, an elephant in the room of slavery and the track record of the church uh, regarding slavery. We're going to be looking at this incredible book, uh, Philemon. Um, and if you have trouble finding it, it's right between Hebrews and Titus. It's just one chapter, one little letter from Paul uh, to his friend. Um, and we're going to be both looking at this letter, uh, thinking about how it applies, but also just what do we do with this idea of slavery and, and what happens in the Bible uh, regarding it or what doesn't happen in the Bible regarding it. Um, one of the guys I have read on this and found so helpful is a professor named Esau Macaulay. He's a New Testament scholar and an Anglican priest. He released a book a few years ago uh, called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Um, he's actually really funny. He always makes sure you say the whole thing because <laughs> he says this is a hopeful book and we observe and exercise in hope. He says, on the first read, the Bible does not appear to say all that we want it to say in the way that we want the Bible to say it. And how often is that true of any subject? That the, on first read, the Bible does not appear to say all that we want it to say in the way that we want the Bible to say it. And he says, and yet the crucial part is the Bible says more than enough. The story of Christianity does not, on every page, legislate slavery out of existence. Nonetheless, it's the Christian narrative and our core theological principles and our ethical imperatives which create finally a world in which slavery becomes unimaginable. Now Philemon is a reconciling letter. It's from Paul, the Apostle Paul, between two men that he cares about immensely, uh, Philemon and Onesimus. Uh, these are two Christians, two brothers in Christ, created in the image of God, sharing a common humanity, and united by the Holy Spirit. Uh, one was a master, one uh, was a slave, and this is in the city of Colossae. Um, 
And if you think about Paul, uh, there's two things at least as he thinks about this, uh, both the complex relationship of his two friends and often also how slavery was functioning in the first century. Uh, First, Paul was a good Jew. (laughs) And for Paul, the story of the Jewish people, their imagination, uh, their worship, their narrative of how the world should work was shaped by the exodus. The exodus, when the Hebrew people were enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt and God acted miraculously, supernaturally to free them in response to hearing their cries, seeing their pain and the injustice inflicted upon them. Every first century Jew remembered that when they were enslaved, God acted and he heard them. Secondly, Paul was at the same time a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, he existed in a society uh, where slavery was prevalent and really foundational for the social and economic fiber of their societies. And there weren't, you know, strategic democratic ways to affect that in the Roman Empire, the way we might think about it uh, today. Um, and, And by the way, it is true that slavery as it existed in the Roman Empire um, was not the same as our own tragic histories in North America. Um, In fact, even in the first century, if you were a slave in the Roman Empire, you could own other slaves, which is just mind-boggling to me. Uh, It was not the same, but saying it wasn't the same or wasn't as bad doesn't make it good. It was still slavery. One human created in the image of God, claiming ownership of other humans created in the image of God with all of the potential dehumanizing actions that would include. And so on the one hand, looking back to the lens of history, many are surprised that this letter isn't more forceful and direct. Though I would contend that's part of Paul's brilliance in this letter. And part of what's happening here is that he's not addressing a generic topic of first century slavery. Instead, he's addressing his friend, Philemon. And he's addressing this very real uh, potential for conflict. He's doing so with charity and with hope. I wonder how often when we're divided over different things, do we immediately just think about abstract topics versus engaging our friends with charity and hope, not avoiding issues, uh, but also talking about them in a helpful way. Uh, One scholar says, for Paul, the social revolution was to occur uh, in the church, in the body of Christ, at the local level, in the Christian house and household. Uh, It occurs in the new relationship shaped by love in the household of this man Philemon and Colossae, uh, not with swords and shouts in the Roman forum. That's not how Paul saw change Uh, being affected or saw it as possibly changed. Um, So let's look at this letter together. Philemon. First, we're going to frame the scene. Uh, If you go and take a New Testament studies class at a seminary, they might use this book to teach you how New Testament letters work because you can actually get all of it and you get your mind around it because this is a picture-perfect form of a first-century letter, a pristine example. Um, It's dense. It's rhetorically brilliant. It's personal correspondence, uh, but it's not private, which is interesting. Uh, Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Timothy, our brother. Uh, 
Uh, Paul's in a prison cell, likely in Ephesus. And we start to see familiar names of his missionary team here at the start and at the end. We encountered many of these this summer when we walked through the letter to the Colossians, uh, the same city where this letter goes. This letter is written to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister. That's probably Philemon's wife. Um, Archippus, our fellow soldier, probably the pastor of the church in Colossae, and the church in your house. And I just want to kind of hang on that for a moment to say this is a very personal letter. It's not private. They're reading it to the entire church. And so as we think about how is Philemon going to hear and respond and what's being asked of him, uh, this isn't an email that goes to Philemon that he can look at, decide what he wants to do with and delete. This goes to everybody. And the community is going to see either how Philemon responds or how he doesn't. But Paul is encouraged. He's hopeful. He's optimistic. Verse 6 says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing in us for the sake of Christ. Later, he goes, I trust you will do what is good and refresh my heart in Christ. All this is rooted in the gospel and how the lordship of Jesus um, actually meets real lives and how the lordship of Jesus applies when we have very difficult decisions uh, like real people like you and me face. And he's hopeful that the faith of Philemon will act in a specific faithful way, uh, just like Onesimus is hopeful. Um, I have this little story I play in my head. It's completely imaginative, but it's this. Onesimus, he, he's a, a slave, a servant in the house of Philemon, uh, who's a Christian, and this church meets in his home. And I can just imagine one, one time the, the group is gathered, the community's there, and Onesimus, maybe he's uh, bringing food, or maybe he's in a back room, whatever it might be. And I just imagine that they receive this letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, because they would circulate these letters around if they could and read them in the church. And I just imagine they're reading out Paul's letter to the Galatians, and it says, you are all one in Christ Jesus, for you are baptized into Christ Jesus. And that means there's uh, neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. You are all one in Christ Jesus, and you're all heirs through faith in Christ Jesus. And I just imagine him going, oh my goodness, I've got to know about this Christ Jesus. <laughs> um, I want to go meet this man, Paul, who is writing these things. And it's possible that he went to meet with Paul uh, to learn of the gospel and to learn even, maybe if he thinks that, maybe he can help me uh, gain my freedom. You'll often hear uh, people teach on this book, and it's how I would have taught on it before, that Onesimus is, is a runaway slave. Well, let's talk about that and talk about even just that language. Uh, Esau Macaulay says, actually, maybe a more helpful corrective is that Onesimus is an escaped <laughs> slave. He, he, he escaped. He won his freedom. Um, and I want to read to you some verses from Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy 23, all the way back in the Old Testament, uh, God is giving his law to the people. And he says that slaves who have escaped to you from their owners shall not be given back to them. But you're like, hey, Paul, I think you're supposed to read that. <laughs> it says you shall not oppress them. 
says, they shall reside with you in your midst in any place they choose in any of your towns wherever they please. And again, we read that and think, of course. But that is a revolutionary, unheard of idea in the ancient world that's embedded in the book of Deuteronomy. That God would actually uh, welcome and shelter and ascribe agency and dignity and worth to these individuals who would have escaped. This is the first recorded moment that I know of in history where a nation and a culture says, in effect, to those who are enslaved peoples, if you can get free, there will be help for you. And there will be a home for you. And there will be a place for you. Um, at other points in the scriptures, we might struggle with the ethical instructions, but all the way back in Deuteronomy, we see God's heart on this matter. And I, I think it's maybe useful to just have two categories when you think about God's ethical instruction in the Bible. I actually think Jesus kind of shows us this uh, in his teachings, especially the Sermon on the Mount. But it oftentimes you see that an ethical imperative from God, here's how you should do, or here's what you should not do, it's rooted in God's ideal. What's best? And you see the heart of God with that. And then at other times, what you see in the scriptures um, are real life in the dirt instructions. Um, Esau Macaulay says it's ways that God instructs his people to minimize the damage that sinful people can do to one another. And so, for example, when Jesus is talking about issues like marriage and divorce, he talks about here's God's standard, here's his ideal in this area. And then he says, now remember that Moses, so God through the law, through Moses, gave you these constructions uh, regarding divorce. Why? Because of the hardness of your heart. It's not looking at God's ideal. It's going, hey, we know that you live in a sinful, fallen world. Here's how to limit some of the damage you do to one another. And I actually think having those two categories can really help us as we think about um, an issue like slavery and how all the way back in Deuteronomy, we see God's ideal. Um, and then in other parts, like even in 1 Timothy, um, we see God saying, hey, here's how you can limit the damage that you might do to one another. I just think that's helpful uh, for us to think about. Um, and the other thing is that really nothing in this text presents us uh, from assuming, again, that Onesimus would have sought Paul out intentionally. Uh, hey, tell me about this gospel. Um, this is your friend, Philemon. How, how do I obtain my freedom? And so it's really helpful to think of him as someone who's escaped, um, who's gone to seek Paul. And, and when he went, probably just seeking freedom, he found so much more. He's changed by the gospel. And then he's sent back to Philemon. And he's sent back with this letter from Paul that they're going to read to the whole church. <laughs> Everybody's going to be in his business. Let's look at verses 8 through 14, this ethic of love uh, and what Paul wrote. He says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Um, Paul sometimes gets a bad rap in this passage for being uh, manipulative or passive-aggressive. But there's nothing self-serving here. And I feel like Paul's perfectly clear. And what he wants to happen. 
Um, it's not passive aggressive. It is lovingly persuasive. That's what's happening here. It says, Onesimus, I prefer to appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And he's asking, he's hoping that Philemon will respond, not out of compulsion, but for love's sake. In other words, as Paul thinks about these social situations and dynamics, um, on the one hand, there can be justice. There can be, I command you to do this, to not do this. He's actually looking for something even more, um, which is this relationship that they can have. It's very, very interesting. He's, he's wondering, how do grace and mercy flourish in the midst of this conflict and hostility and estrangement? Um, in many ways, he's even giving Philemon um, a gracious way to follow what Paul's asked for. He's not setting up a confrontation with Philemon. He's offering him a helpful pastoral word. He's, he's trying to navigate uh, Philemon, whom Paul loves and led to the Lord, and Onesimus, who Paul loves and led to the Lord. And how can he bridge this estrangement between them? Well, he puts himself in the middle of the situation. He writes in this letter. Uh, he says, when you see Onesimus, uh, treat him as you would treat me. He's my very heart. Uh, welcome him as you would welcome me. Um, and then he holds out this hope, maybe you could even see him as a beloved brother. You see, for Paul, as much as he valued freedom, his primary concern is the mutual reconciliation of those who belong to the Messiah. I mean, think about it. Paul could have said, I command you to release Onesimus. And Philemon could have heard that, and he could have said, I'm going to do exactly what Paul asked, and I never want to see you again. I've done what was required of me. And for Paul, that would have been a fail. That's not what he's hoping for. He actually is hoping for real unity and reconciliation. So let's look at verses 15 through 25. Because again, what is very clear is that Paul hopes he will free Onesimus, but that's not the end of their story. That's the beginning of this new next chapter uh, where they are brothers in Christ. Verse 15 says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. That's an incredible picture of justice and reconciliation, a beautiful hope uh, for relational unity and flourishing. And then Paul's going to build in a little bit on the back end of this letter, um, just in case Philemon is not inclined <laughs> to do what he's asking. Um, and I would say in this last part of the letter, we also, uh, we see the gospel, we see the shadow of the cross uh, looming large over the scene. So verse 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, Charge that to my account. Paul is willing to substitute for Onesimus. Paul is willing to pay any debt that he owes and is unable to pay. I just wonder, do you see the gospel in that? Do you see the Lord Jesus who said, uh, I'm going to substitute for you. And anything you owe and cannot pay, I'll pay. The cross is 
looming large in this scene. This reconciliation is not just hold hands and be friends. It's rooted in the gospel. And it's because Paul has received forgiveness that he's an ambassador of forgiveness and reconciliation. What we're watching here, this is Bishop N.T. Wright, what we're watching here is a living example of the Christian practice of reconciliation. Paul, firmly rooted in the saving gospel of the cross of Jesus, is entrusted with the gospel of reconciliation. And this is what it looks like in practice. This is how it works with real people. It's how Paul does his ministry. And then again, the final few verses show a little bit of Paul's uh, shrewdness. Again, he wants Philemon to respond appropriately, out of love, not compulsion. Uh, But don't forget, this is being read aloud in church. Everyone's there. (laughs) Philemon's probably over there. Onesimus is right there. And the community is waiting to see what happens next and how uh, Philemon will respond. And Paul's saying, I want you to respond out of love, but hey, don't forget that you owe me. (laughs) If I need to call in a favor, I will. But then he assumes the best. Verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Oh, and by the way, get your guest room ready because I'm going to come and follow up. (laughs) I'm going to come see what's happened. And if you've indeed refreshed my heart in Christ by following these uh, instructions, it's brilliant. It is beautiful. And it's pastoral. It's clear. St. John Chrysostom says, What stone would not these words have softened? What wild beast would not these requests have rendered uh, mild and prepared to receive him heartily? Um, And we're, of course, left with a little bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, There's not a follow-up letter in the New Testament that we don't have Philemon's letter to Paul, where he says, here's what I've done with your instructions. Um, I will say, we've got this tantalizing hint. Um, In the early church, there's a bishop named Onesimus. Um, And the Orthodox Church says, this is the same guy. This slave was not only freed, not only became a brother in Christ, but became the bishop. Um, I like to hope in that. I will say Onesimus is a very common name in the first century. (laughs) And so we don't know that with certainty, but it just shows the church in their imagination going, look what God can do. Look how reconciliation and unity works. Look at how this picture-perfect postcard of reconciliation uh, could work out in the life of these two men, in the life of a community, in the life of a society. And so again, we started with the idea of an elephant in the room uh, being slavery. Um, And I actually don't think the elephant in the room is that Paul fails to say what we wish he would have said in the way we wish he would have said it, because I think Paul is clear enough. Um, The elephant in the room, as we read about this, or I guess what we just kind of see off to the side, is, well, if the Bible really is clear on this, how did the church miss the mark for so long? And being faithful to what God has shown. Um, When we think about the Exodus, when we think about the narrative of the Bible, the writings of the prophets, when we think about a book like Philemon, these explosive theological dynamite, like how did the church miss it? 
And that's a fair question. But I want you to consider this. This is, again, Dr. Esau Macaulay. Um, says, God created a people who could theologically deconstruct slavery. And we rightly have complaints that it seemed to take maybe 1,800 years before a significant number of Christians came to this conclusion. That's, that's, a, that's a mark. That's true. But we also need to recognize that Christians began to make strong cases against slavery as early as the 4th century in a way that stood out among their non-Christian peers. He says what's even more interesting is that no society that preceded the 18th century abolitionist movements contended that slavery itself was fundamentally immoral. He says that the widespread move to abolish slavery is a Christian innovation. Um, there's a book by uh, a historian called Tom Holland uh, called Dominion. He makes this point as well. That while it did indeed take the church a long time to come to what we think is a very clear conclusion, he's like, only the church ever had this thought. <laughs> it's unique in the history of the world. Don't miss that. That the theological dynamite of a book like this eventually, little by little, affected that change. There was no other basis where there was a, a right understanding of human anthropology to grant dignity and agency and flourishing to other people. That actually is rooted in the soil of the scriptures and of the gospel and of the Christian imagination and ethics. Paul loves this theological dynamite into this community. But again, his focus is not an issue. His focus is these people the very personal thing that is happening, and Paul is doing the next best right thing. And so for us, I mean, there's certainly broader public things we should think about and pray about and work for and advocate, um, both as Christians and in the church. Uh, we can have vigorous discussions. We're not always going to agree how that best takes place even. And that's a big picture, but Paul is really asking something that in some ways is harder what does reconciliation look like in your immediate real lives? I mean, it, it occurs to me that, especially over the last few years, I, I've, I mean, I could be wrong on this, but, man, at least in my lifetime, I've not seen this kind of estrangement and conflict and hostility. It, it's been a, a poisonous season in many ways. People are completely at odds with one another. They're dismissing one another. And I wonder, what would Philemon, what would reading a book like this, how would we apply it? Think about where do we need to be reconciled first to the Lord. Um, if, you're not, if you're not rooted in the reconciliation you have with the Lord, if you've not been welcomed by God, if you don't realize that Jesus has said, I'll pay what they can't, um, then you're, you're starting behind the eight ball as you think about how to even address these situations. But I wonder, where is reconciliation needed? Uh, within families, uh, with friends, with, with a neighbor, with political opponents. I, I've seen so many people who five years ago were close friends and now they won't speak. Or they would share a meal as a family and now we don't talk to Uncle Bob, or we definitely don't let that kid voice his opinion. Um, how do we get there? 
And do we have the imagination for getting back to reconciliation and unity? And not just you're right, they're wrong, but what's it look like to have fellowship in the Lord? Reconciliation and unity and flourishing. What's that look like within groups in our communities? What's that look like between churches and within our church? Who do we need to be reconciled to? And where is God calling us like Paul to see estrangement and hostility and move towards it as agents of reconciliation? You see, Paul is a bridge. I mean, he's a bridge because Jesus is a bridge, but Paul's a bridge. And I wonder where we're being called as individuals and as a church to be a bridge. And once we begin to prayerfully, creatively identify that, well, our next task is to say, Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you empower us for the work you've given us to do? Would you give us courage to do the work that you've given us to do? And then would you come and work in and through us? And I'm particularly intrigued by this persuasive uh, rhetoric of Paul. Because I get, so he's like, I could give you a command. I could make you do this. And when I see situations that are, where people are apart, that there's so much of me that wants to say, I can give you a command and make this work. But what's it look like to be lovingly persuasive? Um, to honor each person in a conflict. And to hope not just for, uh, you know, a truce, but to actually hope for a renewed fellowship in the Lord between people who are at odds, using this courageous ethic of love that Paul models for us here. As we think about this little gem of a book, may we be inspired to practice and to pursue and to proclaim uh, gospel-centered, socially engaged reconciliation as those whom God has reconciled first to himself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.